Hi, this is Senator Pat Spearman. I represent Senate District 1 in North Las Vegas. This is the Compassionate Las Vegas podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome back. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad that you are joining us for this very special episode with someone who is simply going to inspire and amaze you. You are truly in for a treat. I know I say that with all of our guests, but they are all so incredible. And this one is certainly no exception. Before we get into the details of today's guest, I want to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. And while you're at it, go ahead and tap that five-star rating. Your rating and your review does help others to find this podcast. And of course, I know that you want to share compassion with as many people as possible. So that's just one small step you can take to help our mission. And your mission, because that's why you're listening, because you care about this subject. Now, about our guest. Born in the Midwest, the middle child in a blended family of four brothers and nine sisters, a minister, veteran, academic doctor, and state senator, Patricia Spearman is truly a unique jewel and a gift to Nevada. As an advocate for the rights of others, fighting for justice, equality, and equity always drives her purpose, which is rooted deeply in her faith. As a woman of color and a member of the LGBTQIA community, she has personally overcome discrimination, harassment, and being overlooked. Rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel, becoming an ordained minister, Earning a doctoral degree and being elected to state senate are just some of Dr. Pat Spearman's achievements. This episode is full of wisdom, inspiration, and stories of compassionate action. So without further ado, let's get into it. Again, just welcome to the podcast. This is exciting for me because my good friend, the late Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson, talked about you continually uh, just with words of adoration. When I first moved to Vegas about six years ago to start my church, he said, this is someone you need to talk to. This is someone you can relate to and you can really uh, model yourself after. So it's a pleasure to meet you face to face virtually today. You know, um, gosh, this past weekend, uh, well, the fourth weekend weekend past, uh, you know how you just kind of feel like you're not really with it? And I kept trying to figure out what's going on, what's going on. Uh, my sister's birthday is on the 2nd. And so that was really, really joyous. Um, but on the 4th, it was like, and then it hit me. Oh, wow, this is the one-year anniversary. And it was like going back in my mind, you know, you know, fast rewind um, to going to the hospital and praying with him and... Um, and staying for a while and then waking up the next morning to the awful, awful news that he had left us. Yeah. Um, but uh, Cinnamon Thompson, Tyrone, is the type of spiritual personality that is never really gone because the work that he has done uh, lives on in so many different ways. And we have uh, memorialized him uh, in naming buildings and schools, but I think the real honor uh, comes with people like you and I whose lives he touched and were made better for it. Um, And we know that the scripture tells us that uh, when we reach that door uh, from time to eternity, either way we win. Either way we win. Absent in the body, we're present with Christ. But um, um, it just doesn't seem real. Yeah, it it doesn't. So quickly, and I, I didn't realize it had been a year already yeah. I was with him in, in Carson the week before ah, on the floor. Okay. And okay. when I got the news, I just was like, this, this isn't possible because I, I was just with him. Yeah. yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. So it is, it is truly surreal. And then here we are now a year later by zoom because <laughs> of a virus who would have thought 
Yeah, yeah. And so you didn't come over to my office while you were in Carson City? I did not. It was a really quick turnover. He introduced me to like 30 people. Um, (laughs) And um, for what we may have stopped by your office, but I don't think you were there. So, uh, yeah, but uh, it it was a good time. And we did get to pray together as well, because there was, as you know, there's always drama, right? Right. But there was some some drama. So we were were praying about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm glad that... um, that I was blessed to meet him. Yes, me too. Blessed to meet him. So, so let's get into this. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Who is Pat Spearman? I know you have a thousand different titles. So, you know, who are you and how do you define compassion? So I, out of all the titles, uh, Senator, uh, former pastor, uh, academic doctor, Lieutenant Colonel, all of those really, really embody, if you will, what I believe compassion is. And by that, I mean, there's, there are so many places that we can show compassion and in so many different ways. And in all of those ways, they provide me an opportunity to show compassion. And, 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 and I define compassion by separating the words, the, the, the syllables co-passionate, passionate with something, passionate with someone. And passionate for me means that uh, I see something that's really good and I put my energy into making it better or at least sustaining it. And then when you see things that are not so good, then, then it's that, that passion for justice and, and that, that passion for equity and equality that, that drives me to want to make a change. So, um, I, I, I mean, I just, I just do, do what I do. I was called, um, called to preach when I was six. Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I was saying in another interview uh, yesterday that I couldn't read my school books, but I could read the Old Testament. And uh, I mean, I could read the long names, you know, the ites and yeah. the, the and yeah, I could read all of that, but I could not, you know, that Jane and Spot, man, that was hard. You know, I, sometimes I just make it up. I see the dog, dog jumping towards the ball and I say, you know, uh, the, ball, the, the dog is jumping for the ball or see Jane run for the ball or something like that. So um, I'm, I really am, well, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I want to be used by God. Um, I retired from the military, <clears throat> fully retired in 2007. And my friends tease me now and they say, you get an F in retirement. Okay. You didn't learn what that was about. You get an F in retirement. But when you're working for the Lord in whatever capacity, you don't really retire, you refire. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. I love that. So do you see your work as a senator as an extension of that as well? Without a doubt. You, you know, um, as a senator, I, as a senator, it's just instead of me pastoring a church and uh, the church that I was pastoring, we'd, we'd gotten up to close to 100, almost 100 people. OK, I say now I have my. I have 128,000 or 130, whatever the population is for the district. That's how many people that I pastor. And I see it as an extension because uh, before getting elected, I would always have to call somebody to say, here's an issue that a member of my church is having, or this is something that I saw, uh, or can you take a look at this? Now I am that person. And so what I can do now as I see things that need to be fixed it really is just a matter of picking up the phone and, and, and trying to fix it. So, so being a senator is more about why God placed me here and making sure that I'm listening to what God wants to do through me while I'm here and making sure that I'm always available uh, for whatever it is that God uh, wants to use me for. Um, there, a few weeks ago, I found myself singing that song by the, the Thompson community, Lord, I'm available to you. I love that. You know, my one. life I, I give to you, you know, use me as you want to. Um, and so that's what, that's really what this is for me. That's really what this, especially in, in this time of um, COVID-19, when so many people 
are suffering. I mean, it's like, God, it, it, you know, this, this, this has got to be what it felt like for people during the, the Holocaust who looked out and they saw and, and kept asking, you know, God, where are you? God, why did you allow this to happen? And, 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 and then there's a, there was a movie uh, years and years ago, Oh God, and I don't know if you ever saw George Burns played God. Uh, I just dated myself, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but he played God and um, uh, I think it was uh, Campbell, Campbell, anyway, the country, country center played the, um, uh, played the guy who God was after and all these things were happening. And he finally, you know, cornered him and he said, God, he said, if you're really God, then why are babies suffering? If you're really God, why are old people dying and they're alone? If you're really God, and he just went through all these litanies and, and the, the persona of quote, God said, I'm not allowing this to happen. You all are doing this. You, you all are doing this. You know, I put all the goodness in the world and I put all the goodness that I have in you. I put all of the, the mercy and the compassion. I put all of that in you. So don't blame this on me. This is really about why aren't you all doing something? Why, why aren't you all doing something? So it's, it's like, this is an extension ministry, if you will. I, I don't know if I answered your question. Sometimes, sometimes I kind of get wrapped up in the question and go a little bit further, but, but in a time like this, um, when, you, when you look at people who are losing loved ones, and, and they, they can't be with their loved one in those final moments. And they, you know, because a virus like this still lives in your body, even when your body, body functions stop, there's, there's not that closure of seeing and being able to touch, or there's not that you just, it's just like it ended, and you didn't get a chance to say or do anything. And that's, that's traumatizing. It's traumatizing and it, in some ways it can be emotionally debilitating. So they're living with that and they're also living with um, job loss. They're, they're living with you know financial, um, uh, inevitable financial catastrophe. In a time like this, I believe God has placed God has placed me here and others so that as we see those things that need to be corrected, instead of picking up the phone and calling somebody saying, can you help me? It's a matter of me picking up the phone and calling the agency or calling the organization or whatever and giving them my title so that they pay attention, but then going on to describe to them the help that I need for someone else. Yeah, that's powerful. I think that that's you spark so many different things for me in that that statement. One of the things that is is absolutely evident is your strong faith in God and that God is the the center and 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 really reason for the things that you do. Yeah. Now, I don't want to ignore the pink elephant in the room for a lot of people. Okay. Which is you are female, mm -hmm. which as a pastor even in the year 2020 is still somewhat controversial and you are openly LGBT. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that in that journey. Yeah, and the other elephant in the room is I'm black. And you're black, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I often say, when you put those three together, um, uh, I'm African-American, I'm a woman, and I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, you cannot be more marginalized than I am unless you're a Disney character, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, goofy comes to mind, all right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so what this really means is that in Genesis, when God made everything and the last verse there in one says, and God said, everything was good. People may not be able to understand how committed to diversity God is, but I get it. And when you look at someone like me, who God called and God called all of me to the table. God, God didn't say, leave your blackness over here. God didn't say, leave your womanist over here. God didn't say, leave your, your gayness over here. God said, I am calling you. And God knew who I was when God called me. 
and God knows who I am while yet God uses me. When, when I was younger and, and in ministry, the thing that, the thing that I always had to uh, deal with was uh, male pastors wanting to ignore the call that God had on my life. And I would, when I was, when I was, when I was a child and when I was a teenager, I would, out of respect, wouldn't say anything. Um, but as Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Mm -hmm. But when I grew up, <laughs> Lordy, Lordy, have mercy. Okay, I, I wasn't, I wasn't about to take that. And then after I went to seminary and learned even more, and learned the, uh, I, I learned the text from the original languages, from from Hebrew and from from Greek, and 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 learned how how some of that you know what Jesus spoke wasn't really Greek and it it was a little bit of Hebrew but it would be classified more like we say Ebonics mm -hmm. okay and so it took Paul coming along and and interpreting that interpretation if you will I am who I am and I am who I am unapologetically and and when you see God use me you can't deny that God calls people just like me other people may not be able to accept it, but God didn't ask their permission. That's the good part about it. You know, God, when God called me, God didn't, God didn't say, hey, let, let, let's call so-and-so and see if they're okay, which is God's like, mm, this is what I'm getting ready to do. And if you don't like it, sorry about your luck. <laughs> <laughs> so how does all of that, these many facets of who you are, how does that shape your approach to compassion? Because I've been dismissed. I've been dissed. I've been disrespected. Uh, whatever has hurt me often has been minimized. And, you know, you, you, hear, the, you hear the saying, hurt folk, hurt folk. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I like to turn that around. You know, when you're hurt, get help so that you can help people. I love when it. Hurt folk, yeah. get help. Hurt folk, help people. Mm -hmm. and, and so the lens that I always look through is, how would I feel if this happened to me? You know, how would, how would I feel if this happened to me? Um, dealing with someone, you know, who was, who is a, a pastor and having a real hard time with how to minister to their flock because they themselves are going through this wide range of emotions. So when people like that call me, I'm like, I understand, I get it because I was a pastor at one time. What can I do tangibly? I'm gonna pray with you and I'm gonna pray for you, but what can I do tangibly? When, when, when people have called me about being, um, being out of work, they've been laid off, and um, I was getting a lot of calls in March about people who were, who their uh, mortgage companies and the servicing companies were acting real crazy about, you know, stopping the payments and then not, you know, it not affecting their credit. I remember what that felt like because I bought my house at the top of the bubble here in Vegas. Yeah. And then, so when it started going down, there was a period in time when I was $335,000 upside down in my house and trying to negotiate with um, the servicing company who they basically said, um, miss two or three payments and then we can help you. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. You know, so, so I remember what that felt like. And when they called me and, 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 and told me what was going on and they're, I mean, they're really at wit's end, you know, Senator, I've, 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 I've been trying to get this done for the last two weeks and, and the mortgage is going to be due. I don't have the money and, and, and unemployment will kick in at some time, but I don't know. And the little money that I have, I'm trying to make sure that there's food in the house. Okay, the, the utilities have said we will give you a grace period, but the mortgage company, and so I was able to pick up the phone and um, call someone on our federal delegation and say, this is not what you intended the banks to do, correct? No, it was not. Well, this is what's happening. What's the name of the bank and who were they talking to? Being in this position, and having those private cell phone numbers, it was like within 15 minutes, it was done. And it wasn't me, it wasn't me, but like I said, God has me here so that I can do things like that. 
And when I called the person back, they said, oh, Senator said, I just got a call from them and they were apologetic and everything like that. I said, well, that's good. That's good. And I, I, I called the person back who helped me and I said, will you do me a favor? Will you make sure that you talk to the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all of those alphabets in the C-suite? Make sure you talk to them and tell them that if they do this again, there'll be consequences. You can't do this to people who who through no fault of their own have all of a sudden been thrown into this, this cataclysmic uh, response to a, a, a disease that we don't have a vaccine for. Let's talk about that. Cause you just, I mean, the emotion that you brought out in me through that story is, is really powerful because I'm reflecting on my own situation. And thankfully my employer allows me to work from home during this. So I'm not missing all of my income. However, I'm also a wedding officiant. And with the strip shut down, I'm not getting any of that income. And I can't file for unemployment because I'm still fully employed. And you know, there are all of these hoops and hurdles. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I'm in a position where I'm not missing a mortgage payment, but I could be. And I always try to look at compassion kind of through that lens of it could be me in this situation and how would I want to be dealt with. Yeah. As a senator, a lot of people think that your job may be one thing. Can you help us to understand what you are doing through stories just like that, but on a, on a real tangible day-to-day -day basis, um, you're out of session right now. Mm -hmm. What are you still actively able to do? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? And what type of information do they need to provide in that process? So when, when people have an issue or problem, what I usually ask them to do is send me an email and, and our email addresses are online. You go to the Nevada legislature.com or .gov, go there and um, all of our contact information is there. And that's the best way to do it because then I have, I have um, written permission from you to act on your behalf as it were. So, because there's some things that I can't, that, that I can't talk to people, other people about, unless I have your, your permission to do so. That email gives me permission. A lot of what I've been doing this time around is, like I said, just really, in a lot of ways, just being a pastor. I mean, really, that's just being a pastor. People have issues, people have problems. And like I said, you know, earlier, <clears throat> as a pastor, you know, let's pray. But I believe, you know, when you get on your knees, you pray like it all depends on God. And when you get up, you work like it all depends on you. And together, God makes something happen, something good happen for you. So a lot of what I've been doing is looking at what's going on and uh, checking with our, in with, uh, our legal folks to say, uh, this is what I have observed. Tell me if we have anything that addresses it. There was a, um, a statement made in one of the papers about um, uh, getting information on people who, who pass away with COVID-related illnesses. Well, I don't think, I don't think that's, just, that's anybody's business. I don't think the name, the address, I don't think that's anybody's business. What we need are the numbers, but to understand that behind the numbers, there are people, okay? Um, and so I have them looking into that because I need to make sure that people's privacy is not destroyed because we're trying to get information about this disease. We need, we need who it was in terms of gender, in terms of, um, uh, race or ethnicity and age, but we don't need all that other stuff. I'm also looking at, uh, potential legislation. What do we need to do to make sure that the very next time, and there will be a next time, what do we need to do to make sure that the very next time this happens, we are ready for it? I've been, been looking at the ways in which our um, mental health systems have failed us during this time, have failed us, have failed um, our seniors, or as I, I like to refer to them, our seasoned citizens. It, it has failed uh, women and children who are living in abusive situations. It has, it has failed people who were already dealing with depression. It has failed our veterans 
who are coping with PTSD. It has failed people who are recovering uh, alcoholics or recovering uh, substance abuse. It has failed in all those ways. Why? Because we did not put something in place so that in their isolation, those who were being in abusive situations, those who were living in abusive situations would have a way to reach out and say, help me. And then that help would entail getting them out of there. It, it did not include ways to say to our seniors, because everybody can't do what we're doing. Everybody doesn't know how to, how to use a computer. So it did, not, it did not deal with how do we make sure we're checking in and we're making sure that, that our seniors have a way to have some type of contact with people. You know, how, how do we make sure that person who has not had a drink in 10 years and they work on the strip and they don't know what's going to happen with their job, whether they'll be the ones called back or one of the ones that will get, quote, the letter? How, how are we helping them not to take that drink? Mm -hmm. and, and those are all the things that, that I see we should have been doing. And, and that's not difficult. Does it take some money? Yes, it takes some money, but, but, but there, are, there are monies available at the federal level that we can draw down and then leverage, watch this, leverage with community organizations and faith-based organizations. Because, well, as I said before, pastors are doing this work. They're doing this work. And I think I, I read somewhere where uh, six out of every 10 people that find themselves in, in a, a situation where they need help, whether it's medical, financial, whatever it is, six out of every 10 people, you know who they call first? The pastor. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Let me ask you this. I'm going to let you in on a, this is a, a exclusive for you. I have not talked about this with anyone else, but uh, one of the things that I did when I first moved to Vegas was coaching. So I'm a certified life coach and, you know, I've been doing that for a long time and had some really great successes. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I face in this situation is I can't be reimbursed for that type of service. I can't bill the government for that service, but people need what I offer for them to reinvent themselves, for them to discover their transferable skills and others like me that do this type of work, that our rates are just above what people can afford in this time but they need this. Is yeah. there a way that we can reimagine the system so that we can put pastors and coaches and, and others back to work and they can be compensated while still providing that service without the fee burden being on the people? Yeah, and, and that's what I mean. You know, desperate times like this call for, and you know, sometimes people say, we gotta think out of the box. Uh, but one of my, uh, the chair of my dissertation committee, had this thing, she said, whenever you say, think outside the box, the box is still a reference. It's still a reference. So I don't say think outside the box. Her word was refractive thinking, mm. which means throw the box away, no reference to the box. This is a situation. What resources do we have around us that we can pull together collectively and comprehensively? And now how do we address the problem based upon the new visualization of the resources that we have? So what you just described, um, you, can, you can call it life coaching, but for some people, it's, it's getting with someone about emotional well-being. Now, I'm, I'm clear that there's a difference between a trained uh, therapist and a life coach. I'm clear about that. But until somebody can get to a therapist or until somebody can mentally wrap their head around, I need a therapist, sometimes they're going to come to you. So here's, here, here are the things that we could be doing uh, with our, our medical system here in Nevada, even in the country, okay? We could be looking at the statistics that I just said. Six out of every 10 people are going to their pastors, Okay, they're going to their pastors right now. Pastors are doing all that they can to lift them up and to keep them, you know, focused on, you know, there's a brighter day, you know, Kirk Franklin, brighter day, brighter day, there's a brighter day, you know, um, but, but at the end of the day, pastors need help too. That's right. And some of that, some of that comes right down to, it comes right down to how do we support your work? Because you listen, you're doing the work of someone who is helping people in our community that need that help. Who, who knows? But the person that you talk to, you they could have been five minutes away of completing suicide had they not talked to you. Often they are. 
and and listen, and I've been there as a pastor. I mean, you know, I, I've been there, you know, somebody comes across your mind and, and somebody comes across my mind two or three times and it gets real strong. And, and especially when that happens and I feel it in my heart, I say, let me call so-and-so. And, and whenever that's happened, it has always been when they have been at their lowest and they felt like there just was no use in living. We ought to have a system in place that has pastors and I'm not, I'm not talking about people who, you know, went online and did a search. How do I get a license to preach or how do I get, I'm not talking about that. Oh yeah. That's I'm a whole different about, ball game. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I'm talking. you know, we, we, we have standards, we have metrics that say meet these standards and, and conform to these metrics. And now you're qualified to participate as one of our support partners. And for that, we will compensate you. Maybe it's not compensating per person, but maybe it is a compensation that allows you to still be able to do what you do and pay your bills uh, without saying, I, I can't do anything right now because I can't be compensated. And it's not all about the money. No, it's you not. Know? The money is, not. Is, is not the issue. It's, it's being able, as you said, to, to pay your bills. Yeah. As a pastor, you, you know as well as anyone, all that work isn't free. It's, it's emotionally taxing. It's physically taxing. It's mentally taxing. And yet you still have to perform your job as a senator. You still have to, to do whatever other work you're doing. And I think a lot of people don't recognize how valuable local pastors are because they see the big names on TV with the huge churches mm -hmm. and the luxury lifestyles, not even necessarily knowing like if you average out their salary per person, mm -hmm. they're making less than the, the pastor that has 30 members per person, another mm -hmm. talk show. Mm -hmm. But they see these big names and they think that every pastor is living like that, not knowing that they put in 16 and 20 hour days and don't have anyone else that they can call. So I love that you're aware of that and that you bring that part into the conversation. As we reimagine Vegas, as we reimagine Nevada, as we reimagine the world, what, what is possible in the, the immediate moment? What do you see as possible in the, the future? Community, more community collaborations. And, and let me just stay with the example that we were just talking about. Last session, I had a bill, and I'm trying to remember the number. Uh, I think it was Senate Bill 206. I think it was Senate Bill 206. And that was a suicide prevention bill. But it was a suicide prevention bill that was designed to help um, teachers, counselors, administrators, uh, and even students be able to identify some of the signs of suicide ideation and then make sure that we had in place, um, we had some, something in place so that they could go one place and find a lot of resources. That was brought to me by uh, my um, youth legislator who opened his testimony by saying, by, by, by reading his suicide note. Wow. <clears throat> that that he, he wrote in 2018, in February of 2018, and he was testifying on the bill in February 2019. And just saying, you know, he didn't know where to go. He didn't know who to talk to. He didn't, he just didn't know. And, <clears throat> excuse me, he got to the place where he just felt like giving up. And so he said, I took a bunch of pills. I wrote this note to my parents the note that I just read, and then I laid down. My mother came to my room, and if my mother had not come to my room, I would not be here today. He said, but there are a lot of people just like me. A lot of students, just like me. So what the bill did was, it not only said, let's work with counselors, therapists, psychologists and psychiatrists. But you know the other thing that the bill does? There are churches around schools in the neighborhood. You have, you have members of your church who either have children that go to school or some of the students in your congregation still go to school. In other words, you have access to people who are in these situations, in, the, in these locations. Well, what the bill says is look outside the school and begin to partner 
with faith-based organizations to make sure we have the perimeter around our children is not porous in any way. We can always reach them. And as I said before, it's not just somebody that got online and, you know, let me look up and, and see how I can get this, this license to preach or, you know, oh God, the price of gas just went up. I've been called to preach because I need, (laughs) (laughs) you know, not that, but, but, but what I see moving forward is, is a paradigm just like that where all of us are called together to address a community catastrophe, a community emergency, a community pandemic, a commu- whatever it is, you know, wh- whether it's this, it's a hurricane, it's flooding or it's fires, but we're called together to say, um, I might not be able to do everything, but I can do something. And, and, and the, way that, the way that I like to put it is, uh, we might not have it all together, but together we can have it all. I love that. That's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, so we can't leave anybody out. So that's what I see. I, and I want us in this time, I want us to get that, that there are other resources that we have. And when we draw down federal monies, looking at the community and saying, how, what, what resources do we have here that can help us? What resources do we have? Uh, we have people that are delivering food to individuals and they're delivering food based upon the requests that come in. But you know what? I bet I could probably call four or five pastors and double the number of people or triple the number of people who need food. So if we're working with faith-based organizations, it's not that what, it's not, that the individual deliveries are not, they are warranted because everybody doesn't go to church. But if we can pull all of these resources, the, the, the needs together and say, so how do we address that? With four or five, four or five pastors of, of small churches, that's probably about 300 people that need help doing something. That's what I want. I want to see us do refractive thinking outside the box, throw the box away. No reference to the box whatsoever. This is the problem. Let's gather all the resources in. Here's the problem. Here are the resources. Now, this is how we can use each one of these pieces of that puzzle to address this singular issue that is facing all of us in the community. With the change of our economy, do you foresee Vegas returning to what it once was? Or do you see that we'll have to employ that refractive thinking and truly create a new reality for for our brothers and sisters in this community? Um, Some of what it was before this was good, but some of what it was was not so good. Those not so good pieces or areas, they are going away because I think what people are realizing is that the world has moved on and so we must move on too. One of the things that um, concerns me is the job displacement. Uh, I I read in a couple of different places that we're probably looking at uh, 20% on the low end uh, and as much as 30% on the high end of people who are, whose employment is connected to gaming that will not have a job. It, it, it won't happen, they just will not. Two paragraphs below that, and I'm trying to remember uh, the study that I read that from, but two paragraphs below that, the people who will be unemployed or displaced will be people who are 47, between the ages of 47 and 62. Wow. Let, let, let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. A 50-year-old who has worked in the gaming industry but has been furloughed or laid off 
and, and listen, I don't, I don't blame the employers, okay, because they're suffering too. That's not what I'm saying. Who's going to hire them? Because one of the things that, that happens when people have to cut personnel is you look at personnel in toto. It's not just the salary. It's the health care. It's, it's the likelihood that something will happen. It's, I mean, all of those things that, that, that happen to people as we get older. And, and here's the irony. Here's the irony. Uh, we, you know, we, we started off talking about how utterly impossible it was and still is to wrap our, our minds around the fact that Tyrone Thompson, who's only 52, is gone. But you have people who are 62 and we're throwing them away. Yeah. Okay. So, so the thing that I want to see happen, I want to see a push to identify workers who have been displaced either because of the economic situation of the pandemic or who are displaced because of technology. Because a lot of the jobs are, are even those who come back to work, their jobs are still at risk because of technology and innovation. That's a huge point. And that's something that's been at the forefront of the political landscape, particularly in the Democratic Party, for this entire election cycle. So as someone that has been visiting Vegas since I was a wee toddler and, you know, seeing the difference in the way things are done now, I go to the or went to the buffet and had to get my one. Right. I'll be going back soon. But when I first started going, you know, the, the server brought me my drink and made everything. It was just a different experience. I went for, I think, Thanksgiving or Christmas a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got to get my own drink. What is this? Yeah, so yeah. The, the landscape is changing. Now they have the, the computerized, I don't know what you call it, but AI, I guess, uh, bartenders and mm-hmm. the chefs are now, you know, automated. All of these things are changing. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure the 62-year-old that has this wisdom and can provide that guidance and a listening ear and support, how can we provide them stability when there isn't a job for them? Well, I think think the first thing that we have to do is be real about the fact that what we have done is, whether consciously or subconsciously, we've been practicing ageism. And and that is um, all of the all of the intelligence, all of the strength, everything lies in young people. While those who are above a certain age, well, you all move off the scene because young people are here. That, that is not theologically sound. And here's why. Because scripture tells us, I call the young because they're strong and they can run. But I call the old because they know the way. And so this has to be, this is, has to be a collective endeavor. Here's what I think we should be doing. Now that we've gotten used to the online uh, learning environment, let's use that to teach people new skills, whatever those skills, whatever they may be. AI is coming in, or it's already here. And you know, even now, what, I don't care what, if you call any business, you're going to go through four prompts with somebody who lives inside the telephone, you know, telling you press this number or whatever. Oh, that is, you know, six is not a valid extension. Please press again. You're going to have that. Yeah. And okay. I yell at the phone every time. Yeah, yeah, person. Yeah. I want a real person. And, and, and listen, you know, at the, and sometimes we're online and, you know, we're looking for something and then this little screen pops up and says, can I help you? And, you know, Every time I do this, I start typing something as though I'm talking to you. And then, then the next, the response that I get is, um, uh, please break it down to me in two or three words. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's right. This is a computer. Okay. It's AI. Okay. So, so that's already happening. We should be, we should be retraining people so that they can still have a job. One of the things that I think we ought to be doing with people who are above a certain age, if they are so inclined, we need, we need more people in uh, childcare. When I was in Texas, uh, one of the things that we did, we started, uh, we had what I called our WOW ministry, World of Wisdom. 
Mm. And that's why, that's why I call them seasoned citizens, because <clears throat> after a certain age, you can say, oh, yeah, I've, I've been there before, and I know what that means. <clears throat> and so what we had with, with the WOW ministry, we also had uh, an after-school program, Roots, uh, and the AKAs, the undergrad chapter, the AKAs of Southwest Texas University helped us get that started, and they also provided the tutors. So ROOTS stands for Rearing Our Own to Succeed. We have, we have people, we have kids coming to this, and we first we start off like Wednesday afternoon, I think, yeah, Wednesday afternoon, and they'd be coming for tutoring. And, and, the, and the kids that were in school would come for tutoring, but they'd also have their younger brothers and sisters coming. You know why? Because we fed them. Mm. We, we fed them. And their younger brothers and sisters came because they were going to eat. Now, I know how to cook, but really, I don't like to cook. Okay, I don't like to cook. And that's, you know, this, this whole thing about COVID has really kind of, you know, put me, you know, in some kind of way here because I don't like to cook. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, you know who cooked the meals? Who was that? World of Wisdom. Collaboration right there. Exactly. They, beca they became surrogate grandparents. Yeah. And not only did they cook the meals, and, and we kept it real simple. You know, the little snack was peanut butter and jelly. Okay? And then peanut butter and jelly, and that was just something to, you know, get them, get their stomach to quiet down while they did whatever work it was. They had. Their younger brothers and sisters didn't have work. But they would come in, and they would, they would be wearing the backpack of their older sibling. Watch this. They'd be wearing the backpack of their older sibling. The sibling would take whatever books or homework out of that, and then they would go and sit down in the corner, and they would just look around. So, you know, the other thing that World of Wisdom did? They helped us collect books on Sunday. So that, and, and, and books, if, they, if, if people didn't have them, they would buy them. Books that could be read to young people, to kids, you know, five and six, and under, and you'd have, you'd have the, the AKAs over here helping doing the tutoring, and over in another corner, you would have four or five members of WOW sitting there reading to these kids, or talking about what it felt like, because we did it in, we did it in one of the historic buildings in San Marcos, talking about what it was like to go to school in that building when it was the quote, colored school. Mm. And, and sharing with them that history. Uh, we had people to come in and talk about uh, fishing. You know, you know, let's, let's, you know, maybe go, you want to go on a fishing trip. We had people to come in and talk about what it means to work in this industry or that industry. WOW did that because the generation between WOW and our students was working trying to make a living, okay? But both of them needed each other because for WOW, it gave them purpose or at least it helped them reclaim their purpose because somebody needs me. And when those kids, after a couple of weeks, when those kids would come in, they would start looking, they start looking, you know, for, where's Miss Mary? She, she's not, is she coming? Miss Mary will be here. She'll be here. Or, oh, Miss Mary's still in the kitchen cooking. Okay. Now, you know, I heard from several of the members of WOW and, you know, one lady came to me and she's crying. She said, she said, Reverend, she said, none of my family's here. None of my family. We didn't have computers like this where you could do FaceTime. None of my family's here. But she said, Working with these kids has really given me joy. So how come we can't use the people who, whose lives will be turned upside down to interact with that younger generation? What, what's, oh, I'm sorry. We don't, we don't pay them worth anything. Our, our, our childcare workers, our preschool workers, we don't, we don't pay them. And so, <clears throat> What we need to be doing is trying to figure out how we restructure the federal tax system so that it works for people. And when we restructure it 
and look at it from the standpoint of we must invest in education and we must invest in preschool and we must invest in childcare because the people that you want to go to work, if, if they can't, if they don't have somebody that can, can watch their child, they're not going to be there all the time. Okay. So it's a win-win. So instead of childcare workers making minimum wage, these seasoned citizens, 47 to 62, that want to, they're not forced into it, but that want to work in the industry where we need people who have empathy and who can do this. And by the way, let's pay them $22 an hour because it's worth it. It's worth we'll it. Pay them $22 an hour to start with because the money that we pay them right now is money that will not be going to the penal system in 15 years. That's a huge point. That's yeah. a, it's finding where, it, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little excited with that. Okay. It, it's okay. one of those things that you have to look at the full investment, not just the immediate dollar amount, but yeah. what does this, what's the ROI long-term? Mm -hmm. And you bring mm -hmm. up so many different things. We could talk all day. <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'll, I'll wrap us up here. Okay. But something that you, you've mentioned that I think is, is important is we don't pay people uh, what they're worth. How do you feel about using some sort of basic in income structure like what Martin Luther King Jr. talked about? So I believe in, I believe in the quote, fight for 15. But I believe that when we start talking about income structure, what we have to do is look at how technology and innovation is changing the workplace. And and how the workforce is developing. Because we continue to fight for 15, and guess what happens? I had to go to the store today to, you know, to get some things. Somebody told me that they had paper towels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I was out, you know, they told me they had paper towels one place, and I went there, no paper towels. I got there too late. Went right. another place, no paper towels, got there, you know, and I also needed bleach. Okay. I'm trying to get out of there because I need to get back home. There were 24 self-serve kiosks and seven lanes with a real person there. What does that tell you? Yeah. The, the people who are working there may not be making $15 an hour, but they're blessed to have a job because those kiosks are taking over. And you've probably heard about the Apple store where they don't have anybody in there. Basically you got one or two people, but you go in there and you can, you know, scan this code and whatever, and, you know, pick up something, you know, buy something without even it changing, exchanging money. Yeah. Several stores are going that way. Yeah. So when we talk about an income structure, here's what I say. Let's make sure that people have the, employability skills so that no one can tell them how much they can earn or what their income should be. Give them the skill set that makes them valuable and irreplaceable. And if and when it happens that they are, ir they are replaced, now what they can do is become an entrepreneur. Because, you know, that's, that's all the gig workforce is. It's, it's entrepreneurs. Should we have $15 an hour? Should we, well, maybe, but should we have 20? Should we have 25? I say, let's, let's not limit it. But at the same time, while we're fighting for that and, and making sure that, here's the other thing, let me say this. Um, Social Security is not going bankrupt. But the way Social, Social Security is structured, you and I will probably pay into Social Security all of our working lives. Because I don't know that I'm not going to reach $200,000, $250,000. I think that's where the cap is. I'm not going to reach that. Not, not in my working lifetime. Okay. We ought to remove the cap. Remove the cap so that all income is subject to Social Security. Remove it. Because when you do that, then that means the person who earns $86 million a year that is taxed according to the social security standards. 
You How can someone is? like me, someone that doesn't have the, the title of senator in front of their name, how can I actually help to bring that about? Um, you preach, you have a church, you have friends. Yeah. I'm talking about, I say, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And these are things that will come up again because these are things that I've thought about a lot. And I'm really trying to figure out how we make it happen. But I'm going to need voices like yours and voices like your listeners. Because as I said before, with the right revenue structure, a lot of the things that we keep saying is beyond our reach. It's not beyond our reach. It's beyond our reach because we have antiquated revenue structures. So let's fix that. And that can only happen when people say there's got to be a better way, a more humane way to do this. Okay, so we're going to train workers so that there's not this stratification that if you are, if you work in a grocery store, oh, no, 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 no. We've, we, we realize how important the grocery store workers are. That's there's okay. not this, yeah, there's not this stratification based upon income that this person is low and this person is high because we're putting our, all of our resources, our financial resources into training retraining. We're putting our financial resources into uh, supplying services where we said we didn't have people for those services. We're putting our financial resources into having, and I, this is what I'd like to see for Nevada. I'd like to see us have a, a standing committee, uh, IT committee or technology committee. And you know what they'd be doing? Their only task would be, this is 2020. What's going to be happening in 2027 mm-hmm. that we need to get ready for? And then as they identify that, they come back and they work to see how do we make it happen? Because it's got to happen, not just at the workforce, but we got to look at this from the standpoint, by the time 2027 gets here, the people that, that are right now in eighth grade, they'll be out of school. Okay. So what do they need to know when they get out of school? And don't push everybody into college. A lot of people just want to go to trade and technical school. Some people don't need to do that. Some people have, have already worked and they have garnered enough knowledge to have their own business. So let's support that. Does that answer your question? It gives me a, a lot. And you've given us so much in this time. So I'm grateful for your wisdom, for your courage, uh, for- I'm just ready to your- stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for everything. And it, it's truly an honor. I think I'm going to have to break this one up into two parts um, because it's just it's just so, so full and so many different vital issues. Uh, my thing right now really is what can I do as, a, as an individual that can make Las Vegas a more compassionate city to live, to work, to play in? We are where the world comes, so why not change the world right here? Yeah. So you, I think you've given us a lot that we can work with. Census. On that. The census. Everybody ought to fill out. Everybody ought to fill out the census. Everybody, because the child care that I talked about, the the job retraining, all of those things, health care, all of those things, we draw federal money down based upon the number of people who are in a state, and everybody ought to be filling out the census. And I'm asking everybody who has any kind of a megaphone, microphone, whatever you have, make sure somehow every day you're saying, did you fill out the census? Did you fill out the census? And don't don't get duped by people who say, well, they want to get, no, we want that information because we need those dollars. The next thing that I would say is um, make sure that people fill out their and mail in their ballots. That this is, this is going to be critical, critical. Uh, and last but not least, I would say, Learn the lesson of 2016 and people who want to do a protest vote to to vote uh, vote for the person who's running against the guy who put kids in cages. That's the protest vote. Okay, people that want to say, well, you know, if we don't vote now for a, a third party. No, 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 no. The protest vote is to get this guy out of that's how we that's how we show that we are not satisfied with this. And we ought, we ought to see right now uh, uh, Ahmoud Arbery, and, yeah. and I hope I'm uh, Ahmoud Arbery, in broad daylight. Come on, and and they had they had the tape, you know, two months, and nothing happened, and 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 then you have pictures of of politicians in Georgia in high places that are taking selfies with these guys. Okay. So the protest vote is vote for the guy you know is going to make sure that, as Dr. King said, justice will roll down like a mighty river. 
That's the protest vote. Go out and vote and tell people, we got to make a change. We have to make a change. I think we can leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonridge Group. I am fired up. I'm ready for compassionate action, and I hope you are too. The first step you can take to share compassion is simply leave a five-star rating and review. Your rating and review helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make Las Vegas and the world a more compassionate place to live, work, and play. Today, Senator Spearman encouraged us to put our passion into action. How are you doing that? I would love to hear your story and perhaps even invite you on as a guest. So email me at will at winning with will and use the subject line compassionate LV to let me know your story. I would love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. In case you didn't know, Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast is now on YouTube. Yes, that's right. You can not only hear these amazing stories, but you can see our guests live and in living color on YouTube. So subscribe to our visual podcast. Just search Compassionate LV Podcast with Will Rucker and the channel will pop right up. Love and compassion are not luxuries. They are necessities. Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we will make the world a more compassionate place. Know that you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Be well, my friends, and we will meet again on the next episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast.